Our scripture focus this morning is found in 1 Samuel 3, verses 1b to chapter 4, verse 1a. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and prophetic visions were not widespread. One day, Eli, whose eyesight was failing, was lying in his usual place. Before the lamp of God had gone out, Samuel was laying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was located. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. He ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. I didn't call, Eli replied. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Once again, the Lord called Samuel. Samuel got up, went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. I didn't call my son, he replied. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Once again, for the third time, the Lord called Samuel. He got up, went to Eli, and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli understood that the Lord was calling the boy. He told Samuel, Go and lie down. If he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came, stood there, and called as before, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel responded, Speak, for your servant is listening. The Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do something in Israel that everyone who hears about it will shudder. On that day, I will carry out against Eli everything I said about his family from beginning to end. I told him that I am going to judge his family forever because of the iniquity he knows about. His sons are cursing God, and he has not stopped them. Therefore, I have sworn to Eli's family. The iniquity of Eli's family will never be wiped out by either sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until the morning. Then he opened the doors of the Lord's house. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son, here I am, answered Samuel. What was the message he gave you? Eli asked. Don't hide it from me. May God punish you and do so severely if you hide anything from me that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and did not hide anything from him. Eli responded, He is the Lord. Let him do what he thinks is good. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. And he fulfilled everything Samuel prophesied. All Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was a confirmed prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear in Shiloh because there he revealed himself to Samuel by his word. And Samuel's words came to all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Evelyn, for reading for us today's scripture focus. My name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here and have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures today. So if you have your Bibles, no matter where you are located in our city, would you grab those, turn them open to 1 Samuel chapter 3. Uh, You know, darkness is both disorienting and dangerous. That's why you never walk into a room without first turning on the lights. And this is a problem because my wife oftentimes goes to bed before I do, and 
And when I walk in and the lights are out, it causes a lot of problems for my shins as I'm kind of banging around in the dark trying to find my way to my spot. Uh, this is why we need headlights on our cars. If we did not have headlights on our cars, we would only be able to drive here in Seattle a couple of hours a day during the wintertime, and that would not allow for us to move around very much. I remember years ago, I had the opportunity to preach at a kids' conference, and I was in a rather large space with hundreds and hundreds of uh, fourth through eighth graders. And I stood to preach and to teach the Bible, and just as I was getting started and about to turn everyone's attention to the scriptures, uh, a storm rolled in, and, and it knocked the power out in the facility. So everything went pitch black, and you can imagine how uh, a room filled with fourth through eighth graders were responding to the darkness that they now found themselves in. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of anxiety. There were lots of screams. There were some laughs. There were uh, all kind of just chaos ensued over the course of those, of those moments. And what felt like forever, it really didn't last that long. The generators soon did kick in, but those moments in between, uh, that, those moments in darkness just felt like they lasted forever. And it was amazing the effect light had on, in, had on that space. That when the generators kicked on and the lights came back, it, it settled everyone down. It calmed everything down. It was a wonderful gift that light provided. Now, I think about this in terms of spiritual realities that you and I are a part of as followers of Jesus, and I'm reminded of uh, one of the fruits of the Protestant Refor Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was a movement in church history that started in the 16th century, and it, it had a huge impact. And one of the blessings that flowed out of the Protestant Reformation was uh, the blessing of getting God's word into the hands of all people everywhere. And so there was a big movement as a result of the Reformation, to see the Bible translated into various languages and to see the Bible unchained from pulpits. Because for hundreds of years leading up to that moment, Bibles were chained to pulpits and they uh, stayed in the Latin language that wasn't accessible to many people who would come to church and partake in the gatherings. And, and the Reformers, leaders of the church during that day, recognized that that was a huge problem. Because without God's word, people will uh, just bang around in the dark. Just banging around in the dark, not sure where to go and how to relate to God and how to relate to one another and how to be in the world that is. And so you had guys like John Calvin and Martin Luther and others who would advocate for getting the word into the hands of people. And of course, they were building upon the labors of other uh, followers of Jesus and previous generations, guys like John Wycliffe and others who, who advocated to get the light of God, God's word in the hands of as many people as possible. And so when the Reformation happened, particularly in Geneva, uh, where John Calvin, one of the leading reformers, was pastoring and, and leading out in the church, they, they were so hungry to have God's word preached and applied and, and read and talked about in ways that were relevant and, and applicable and familiar to everyone who was there, that, that they actually built out a schedule for the city of Geneva where six sermons were preached every week. 
And those weren't sermons preached to different groups in the city. Those were sermons that were open to the public and the same worshipers were coming back time and time again to sit under the preaching of God's word, drawn to the light that it provided because they had been in darkness for so long. And so the slogan for the Protestant, for the Protestant Reformation in Calvin's Geneva was after darkness, light. And so we take that metaphor, after darkness, light, and we step into 1 Samuel chapter 3 because 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter 3 drops into a situation where God's people had been living in darkness for a long time. They had been without the light of God's word. And this was a huge problem as, as they were banging around in spiritual and moral darkness. Check it out, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, where we're told about the scarcity of God's word and how rare God's word was in that day. Listen to what he says. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare and prophetic visions were not widespread. Now, visions was one of the ordinary ways in which God brought his word to his people. He would speak through visions that were given to prophetic people. And we're told in this moment that those visions were not widespread, that they were not happening. And that is a problem because we know from Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, that without revelation, without visions, people run wild and they perish, but the one who follows divine instruction will be happy. We know that without God's word, we are left to bang around in the darkness of in spiritual and moral darkness. Without God's word and the light that it provides, it leaves us wanting. Jesus would actually use a different metaphor in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, where he talks about our need for God's word. And when God's word is lacking, how dangerous it can be to the soul as as he says in Matthew chapter 4 verse 4 that man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God that we need God's word to see we need God's word to feast upon and when it is scarce that creates a huge problem now there are details in this opening in these opening verses of chapter 3 details that are that provide us with a uh, just symbolism that speaks to the situation that Israel was in at that time. Eli, for example, in verse 2, is, we're told that Eli's eyesight was failing him, that he was losing his physical sight, his physical vision. And we know that that was a true detail, but it was a detail that spoke uh, much to, about much bigger realities going on in the people of Israel. It's a very similar thing when you think about how uh, John in his gospel would provide us with details describing uh, who people were and what they were going through and how it spoke to much bigger realities. You take Nicodemus, for example. In John chapter 3, we're told of a man named Nicodemus who approached Jesus with the question about God's kingdom, and he expressed his desire to be a part of the kingdom of God. And and it was a surprising conversation because everyone assumed Nicodemus was already a part of God's kingdom. But apparently he did not sense things that way. Things were not right in his own soul. So he comes to Jesus and he engages in this conversation. But John gives us the detail that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. 
And although that was a real historical detail, that was a fact of circumstance, it spoke to something much deeper and much bigger that was going on in Nicodemus's life. For not only did he come to Jesus in the cloak of physical darkness, he came to Jesus because he was living in spiritual darkness. Well, this is what's going on in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Eli, the the priest, the head of the household that was to serve God's people, God's word on a regular basis, Eli's sight was failing him. And because sight was failing him, it was failing all of God's people as spiritual darkness was, was filling out the land. Now, the problem with spiritual darkness is that we have a tendency when we are without God's word and we do not have the light of his word leading us through the world that is, and we're not living in the light of God's revelation of who he is and what he is about, when that is the case, Suddenly, we are left to our own devices, and we become a lot like the people of Israel during the time of Judges that just precedes the book of 1 Samuel, where we are only doing what is right in our own eyes. Now, the problem with doing what's right in our own eyes is that what's right in my own eyes may be considered wrong in yours, and what's considered right in your eyes may be considered wrong in mine, and there's confusion, there's conflict, there's turmoil that comes when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And this was the state of Israel then, and this is in many ways the state of society today. That when there is a scarcity of God's word, we are left to do what is right in our own eyes, and everybody has a different definition of right, a different standard of good. And usually when spiritual darkness is normative, when that is our ordinary way of life, suddenly we, be, we can't tell what's up and what's down, what's right and what's wrong, what's holy and unholy, righteous and unrighteous. All of a sudden, we start affirming things that shouldn't be affirmed. We start denouncing things that shouldn't be denounced, and everything gets confused. That's what spiritual darkness does. We saw this in Eli's life earlier. You remember when Hannah, this humble woman of faith who approached the Lord and brought her barrenness to God and began to pray, expressing her desire for God to intervene in her life. And and she's praying to the Lord, pouring out her heart to God. And Eli is overseeing the scene. And what does he say about that moment? Well, he draws the wrong conclusion. That woman must be drunk. And he mistakes something that is holy for something that is unholy. That's what happens when our sight begins to fail us, when we are living in spiritual Darkness, But then Eli would go one step further because we learned last week about Hophni and Phinehas, his two sons who were wreaking havoc in the temple, preying on people, and they were doing wicked things, and yet Eli did not take action against them. Once again, spiritual darkness flips everything, changes everything, confuses everything so that we call what is good evil and we call what is evil good and So when there is a scarcity of God's word, it creates a lot. It creates a lot of problems. Now, you may be hearing this and thinking to yourself, well, I know there's not a scarcity of God's word in in our lives today because we have so many Bibles. Uh, Many of you, perhaps in your home, you own many Bibles and you can grab God's word and read it anytime you want. 
You can go online and you can listen to preachers and teachers of God's word every day of the week. You can even watch videos that help explain God's word to you in dynamic, creative, uh, faithful ways. We have so much access to God's word. But what you have to understand is that God's word is the scarcity of God's word has nothing to do with access. It has everything to do with appetite. Has nothing to do with access, everything to do with access, uh, appetite. Do you know that a person may starve not because they lack food? A person may starve because they lack desire, appetite. They don't want the food that is available to them. And so we want to be warned in light of this dynamic that many of us may be shrinking back into spiritual darkness because our appetite for God's word has lessened. It has weaned. We are not eager to hear from the Lord. We don't want to know what he thinks about everything. And so we just have our Bibles. We own our Bibles, but we set them aside and we don't devote time to hear from God through the scriptures. And I think one of the issues, one of the challenges that we face in our society is that this scarcity of God's word may be the result of a lack of faith in the sufficiency of God's word. We do not honestly believe that God's word is enough for the building of the church. We do not believe that God's word is enough for the advancement of God's kingdom. That's why we grab so many other crutches to move through a city and to live on mission, not believing that God's word is sufficient for us. And one of the ways that you can tell if this is true for you and if your appetite for God's word is waning is, well, have you trivialized God's word? How do you respond to the reading of God's word publicly? You hear a portion of scripture read in our gatherings, and do you tune out during those times waiting to hear someone like me stand up and start talking about the passage rather than hearing the passage directly for yourself? Do we trivialize God's word, that therefore we aren't reading it confidently in public because we assume that people don't want it or that it will dull them or put them to sleep. And so we, we apologize for the reading of God's word or we don't do it all together. I assure you that there is not a scarcity of God's word in the life of our church or in our weekly worship gatherings. The reason why we want to read God's word publicly is because when God's word is read, God is speaking. And we don't want to trivialize that moment. We don't want to downplay that moment. We want to humbly put ourselves before God's word, knowing that when it is being read, God is speaking. And so we put ourselves before it on a regular, weekly basis and and we trust God's word to do the work of building his church. We trust God's word to do the work of creating faith where faith is absent, strengthening faith where faith is weak, stirring affections where affections have grown cold. And if your appetite for God's word right now is, is less than what it once was, let me give you a prayer to pray that my mentor once gave me where he said, you know, a lot of times when people don't desire God's word, they're told to pray for that desire. And so we often pray, God, would you give me a desire for your word? Would you give me an appetite for your word? Would you give me a hunger for your word? And although that is a good prayer to pray 
perhaps we should start one step further back. Because sometimes it's not so much that we need God to give us a desire for God's word. What we need even more than that is for God to give us a desire to even desire God's word. And so we need to step a few, we need to take a few steps back from that and just pray regularly, God, give me a desire to desire your word. For I don't want there to be a scarcity of your word in my life. For where there is no vision, people perish. Where there is no spiritual food, people, where we're not eating what's available to us, we will starve. And so Israel had quite a problem at the opening portion of chapter 3 where many people were banging around in spiritual darkness because there was a scarcity of God's word. But the Lord is kind and he is gracious and he is merciful and he's more committed to you and me than we are to him. Therefore, even in the midst of that, God was at work in the life of a young man named Samuel to solve that problem. And so even though Eli's sight was failing him and the lamp was dimming in the temple, it wasn't snuffed out because the Lord was at work. And we're told that that God had provided in the temple He had placed Samuel there to tend to the lamp according to God's word. And so one of the responsibilities young Samuel had being in the temple was to make sure that the lamp did not go out, but to tend to it regularly according to what God had spoken in the law of Moses. And so even though there was spiritual darkness was growing in the land of Israel, the Lord was about to flip the script on it by raising up a prophet named Samuel. And so much of this chapter deals with his calling, and and young Samuel would soon hear his name being called by the Lord. And so we move from the scarcity of God's word to the calling of God's word. Check it out in verse 4. It says, Then the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here am I. He ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. I didn't call, Eli replied. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down down. Once again, the Lord called to Samuel and the scene repeated itself. Three times, young Samuel heard the Lord say his name and he mistook the Lord's voice for Eli's voice. So he ran in to see if Eli was calling him and what he might need only to have Eli turn him away. Now, it makes sense that Samuel uh, did not readily recognize the voice of the Lord because God's word was rare in those days. And Eli had not discipled him to learn how to recognize and hear God's voice. And so it makes sense that he wasn't readily recognizing the Lord. And I love how kind and patient and persistent the Lord was to repeat himself time and time and time again until it finally registers. And Samuel is led even under Eli's counsel to consider whether or not the voice he was hearing was the voice of God. This is one of the things we have to do in discipleship when a person comes to faith in Jesus and they begin to worship the Lord. We have to train and teach each other how to become more familiar with the voice of God so that we might hear his word regularly and benefit from the light that his word intends to give us. And so Samuel in this moment is being called by the Lord. He's hearing God's word, call him. And I want you to understand when you look at verse seven, that when God's word calls us and God's begin to speak, God 
God's word begins to speak to us. Understand that God's word calls us to ultimately know, to know the Lord personally. Much of what God's calling is intended to do is to draw us into a personal, vibrant relationship with the Lord where we know him and we trust that he knows us. You look at verse 7. It says, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now that's a very similar construct to what we heard earlier in chapter 2 where we're told that Hophni and Phinehas, the two wicked sons of Eli, they did not know the Lord. But the difference is found in that word yet. Hophni and Phinehas did not have a vibrant relationship with the Lord. They were not redeemed in that sense. But Samuel will soon know the Lord. He will know the Lord personally because though he had not known him yet, he will. And we begin to see this beautiful dynamic that God knows his people before his people know him. That the Lord doesn't have to ask us our name because he already knows our name. And one of the prominent features of this chapter is how often Samuel's name pops up. In this one chapter alone, Samuel, his name is found 22 times. Because the Lord knew Samuel and he called Samuel to know him too. God knows you and me before we know him and this should encourage our souls. This is one of the reminders that the God we are worshiping and serving today is a God of grace. This is a God who calls us not because of our merit, not because of our achievement, not because of our attainment, not because we have found our way through the spiritual darkness of this world, but we are people who have responded to the light that has broken through. That God has revealed himself, yes, in the scriptures, but ultimately in the person of Jesus. And so we look to his light and we find life. And that life comes to us by grace as God calls us into this relationship that we might know him, the Lord knowing us before we know him. And so Samuel's going to get to know the Lord now. He's going to step into a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. He's going to move from simply believing that God exists and simply believing that God did some cool things in the history of Israel, he's going to shift into, no, I'm going to know God. Not, I'm going to know not simply that he exists, but I'm going to know who he is. And I'm going to come to understand his name, not because I've heard about his name, but because I've experienced the power of his name personally. As the Lord is moving into Samuel's life to draw him into this relationship, God's word calls us to know him personally. It is not enough. It is not enough for you and I to know about the Lord. We must know the Lord. Hophni and Phinehas knew about the Lord, but they rejected what they knew about. But those like Samuel who are called to know the Lord personally, we we move into a de- in a deeper direction where we know not simply that God exists, but we know who God is. And we come to a deeper understanding of what God is about as we live in that relationship where we get to know him, knowing full well that he knows everything about us and yet loves us anyways. As we continue to journey with Samuel over the next few chapters, we're going to see Samuel. He doesn't get everything right. He makes some mistakes. 
But, he's com- but God is committed to Samuel because God is a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. And as Samuel kind of stumbles and bumbles along trying to find his way in light of what God has spoken to him, he, he will experience growth. He will experience maturity. And he's going to see the Lord do some remarkable things. So God's word calls us to know him personally. But then there's another dynamic to this encounter. Because not only does God's word call us to know him personally, God's word calls us to serve him faithfully. To serve him faithfully. And for those of you who are Christians, and you are trusting in the Savior, right now you have a relationship with the Lord. I want you to understand that knowing the Lord and serving the Lord are two sides of the same coin. That it's not that we know the Lord and then serving the Lord is optional. No, to know the Lord means to serve him. And to serve the Lord deepens our knowing of the Lord. Knowledge and service go hand in hand. And those who know the Lord personally are called to serve him faithfully. And this is what Samuel will realize as he's kind of put into a long line of other folks who received this calling to know and to serve the Lord. This was true of Abraham. This was true of uh, Jacob. This was true of Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Now it's going to be true of Samuel. He's going to know the Lord personally and serve the Lord faithfully. And then you keep going and you find yourself reading about Jesus in Galilee. And you hear of him stepping onto the Sea of Galilee and he's looking at four fishermen, Peter and John, James, And Andrew, and he sees these four guys, and what does he say to them? He says, hey guys, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Two sides of the same coin, follow me, know me, step into a relationship with me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Serve me, be about what I am about, be about my purposes, my plans, be about my kingdom. To know the Lord and to serve the Lord go hand in hand. They are intertwined. And they cannot be separated. So we may wonder, if we're not serving the Lord, do we really know the Lord? If we're not about the things that Jesus is about in the world, do we really have a vibrant relationship with him? See, one of the problems in Israel back in the day was that there was a scarcity of God's word. And because there was a scarcity of God's word, the Lord calls Samuel because he was about to solve that problem. And this is a consistent pattern we come to find in the history of redemption is that when there is a problem in the world and God gets ready to go to work to solve that problem, he ordinarily calls men and women to be the solution. He raises up men and women who know him personally and who will serve him faithfully to bring his solution, to bring his will, to bring his word upon those dynamics. This is what we find in Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus is walking around and he's been teaching about the kingdom of God and, and serving people by healing them and casting out demons and doing various things. But then there came a moment in Matthew 9 where Jesus sees a crowd of people And what he sees kind of unsettles him. What he sees just unlocked compassion within him because he noticed that the crowds were filled with people who were harassed and helpless, distressed and dejected. They were like sheep without a shepherd. 
And so he recognizes a huge problem in front of him as he sees the crowds, but then notice what he does. The very first thing he does in response to what he sees is to pray. And listen to what he prays. He says, or then he says to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So Jesus sees a problem. And the way he's going to solve that problem is by turning to the disciples and telling them to pray. But what does he tell them to pray for? He doesn't tell them to pray for the problem. He doesn't tell them to pray for what's wrong with people. He tells them to pray for the church. He says, I want you to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers, more workers, that those who know him personally would serve him faithfully, that they would become God's solution to the various problems that exist in the world that is. That we would live in light of God's word and embody the realities of God's word so that people around us are cared for and brought into an awareness of the reality of Jesus and all that he has done for us. And so when God gets ready to go to work in the world, he works ordinarily through those who know him and serve him. And Christian, you are called into that reality. The calling of God's word upon your life is to know God personally and to serve God faithfully. To be about what Jesus is about in the church for the city, in the church for the world. Now we as a church, we We're acutely aware of this dynamic because we haven't been around very long. And as we have started this new church in our city that's going to reach its nine-year mark next month, we, we know and we've seen over the years how dependent we are upon volunteers and how often we need volunteers to step in and to be about what Jesus is about in the life of the church, to help us do various things in the life of the church. But what I want us to think about this morning is we, I really want us to, kind of kick the language of of being volunteers. Because there's a big difference between being a volunteer and being a devoted disciple. You know, a volunteer usually volunteers out of the excess of their time, and they do things for people they like or for causes that they appreciate. So they volunteer their time and their energy, their resources to, to do certain things, but usually it's out of the overflow of their life. They volunteer out of excess. And they volunteer in response to things that they like. But there's a difference between that dynamic and what we might describe as a devoted disciple. See, a devoted disciple doesn't do things in response to what they like. A devoted disciple devotes his or herself to what he loves. And as we love the Lord and we love God's people, we devote ourselves to being about what Jesus is about amongst his people. And we do so not out of the excess of our lives, which is why we're willing to make sacrifices. We make sacrifices of our time and our talents and our treasures because we devote ourselves to what we love. And as followers of Jesus, we love Jesus. And because we love Jesus, we are being transformed into his image so that we're loving what he loved and loves and we are hating what he hates and we're wanting to be about bringing his kingdom into the world because ultimately that's what he's about. 
And so in the life of our church, we kind of want to shift from thinking of ourselves as volunteers and how we need volunteers to help us do various things in the church. We don't need volunteers. We need devoted disciples. We need those who love the Lord and love the Lord's people and love his kingdom to, to give not just out of the excess of their time and their talents and their treasures, but to give sacrificially as they devote themselves as worshipers of the Lord, as lovers of God. This is the calling of God's word upon us. We are called not just to know him personally, but to serve him faithfully, to devote our lives to him and his purposes. And we have the joy of doing that together in the life of the church. And so let me encourage those of you who are hearing this and you're wondering what you should be doing right now, lean into the life of the church. Be about the things that Jesus is about in the life of our church right now. Help us to solve problems in our city. Help us to solve problems in the world. Help us to listen to the light of God's word so that we might see him bring redemption out of ruin and flip the script on the world's expectations, doing all the things that he does. In this instance, God is calling Samuel to solve the scarcity problem, and he's going to do that in a powerful way. Because in verse 11, the Lord speaks to Samuel, and he speaks what he wants, a message that he wants Samuel the prophet to deliver to Eli and to Eli's households. Now, this was, this was a heavy dynamic because it's not a pleasant message to share. I mean, can you imagine being young Samuel, being called to, to, to be a prophet and to bring God's word, and the first word you have to bring is a word of judgment. It's a word of condemnation upon Eli's household. That's, that's one of those things where you just want to scratch your head and be like, thanks, thanks God. Uh, thanks for calling me into this. And so Samuel has to bring a first, his first sermon is a word of judgment. It's not pleasant. It's not one people are excited about hearing. You look at verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do something in Israel that everyone who hears about it will shudder. Another word of saying that is I'm about to do something that's going to give people goosebumps. And it's not the goosebumps you might get when you're riding a roller coaster and you're thrilled and excited. This is the goosebumps that I imagine arrive when an airplane you're in is falling out of the sky. That's shuddering. That's goosebumps. That's what the Lord's word is in this moment. Samuel is going to deliver a hard word. It's a hard word of judgment. Now, as you keep reading through the moment, you find Eli actually responding in a way that's kind of his high mark in the book. This is the best response Eli has given to any situation, I think, before the moment. You look at the end of verse 18. After Samuel tells Eli what God's going to do to him and his family, and how judgment is coming upon them. Listen to what Eli says at the end of verse 18. Eli responded, he is the Lord. Let him do what he thinks is good. And to Eli's credit, he accepts God's word as God's will. You see, Eli understood that the sun does not cease to shine because clouds block it from our vision. Eli comes to a point in his life where he surrenders, he submits, and he recognizes God is sovereign over sunshine and he's sovereign over the storms. This is a remarkable response that Eli gives. But what's really curious about this text, and one of the things we need to consider, 
is that the word that Samuel delivered to Eli was a word that Eli and his sons had already heard. Earlier in chapter 2, the unnamed prophet showed up and told Eli and his household this exact same message. And now the Lord calls Samuel by name, and Samuel goes, and he shares that message again. And what we begin to find is a very important principle that what God speaks is what God's already spoken. That God speaks what he's already spoken. This is true in how the nature of prophecy often works in the Old Testament. Anytime he brings a word or a vision to people, for people, through his prophets, it's always an echo of what he has already said, of a promise he's already made, the fulfillment of things that he's already declared. Because God speaks what he's already spoken. And when you and I consider ourselves engaged in the ministry of the word today, whether we are preachers or teachers of the Bible, whether we are engaging in uh, the spiritual gift of prophecy according to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, which is a different dynamic than what we're reading about in the Old Testament. It's a different dynamic. But anyone who's engaging in the ministry of the word, understand that we, only, we are to only speak what God has already spoken. We don't put words in God's mouth. We don't avoid hard truths that God has already declared. We don't Avoid great truths that God has already declared. No, we speak what God has already spoken because God speaks what is already spoken. And so you have Samuel being a wonderful model of that in this moment. And he becomes a model for guys like me and gals like me who may preach or teach God's word in different settings and in different contexts. We only speak what God has spoken. And so you take that dynamic and you consider what God is speaking here and, and you begin to see the effect. You begin to see kind of a, a twofold effect of the ministry of God's word, that God's word does a couple of things for us. On one hand, God's word has a tendency to afflict the comfortable, that God's word has a tendency to bring conviction, that God's word often hits us the way the light hits a frat house on a Sunday morning after a long party on Saturday night. And you walk in and you turn on the lights and everybody starts grumbling and complaining because they are far more comfortable in the darkness than they are in the light because of all that they have been indulging in. Well, sometimes God's word does that to us. It convicts us. It afflicts us when we are comfortable in darkness. When we are asleep in darkness, the Lord's word may strike us suddenly and it may strike us aggressively as it afflicts us in our comfort when we, are in, when we are comfortable with that which isn't of the Lord. And so God's word afflicts the comfortable. It brings conviction. It brings an awareness of sin. It, it turns the light on when we would rather hide in the dark. You know, one of the reasons Jesus was rejected in the gospel we're told in John chapter 1 that Jesus was rejected because people loved darkness rather than light. That Jesus' presence, the word made flesh, afflicted the comfortable. And they did not want to be unsettled. They did not want to be challenged. They did not want what was true about them to be revealed to them. And so they rejected Jesus. They blamed Jesus. They avoided Jesus. But the problem with rejecting Jesus and avoiding Jesus of dismissing discomfort, of dismissing conviction, is that we don't get to the second aspect of how, the God, how God's word ministers among us. 
Because on one hand, yes, God's word afflicts the comfortable, but at the very same time, the very same word has the ability of comforting the afflicted. That the reason we are convicted, the reason we are unsettled, the reason we are made uncomfortable with what our lives are like is so that we might find life in Christ. So that we might follow the light of the word to the living word, Jesus the Christ, who entered the world to live and to die and to rise again. And in his word, we find comfort. We find our unsettled consciences. We find peace. We find settlement. We find relief. We find mercy. You see this movement in the text right after Samuel drops this hard word on Eli and his household. We're then told in verse 19 that Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and he fulfilled everything Samuel prophesied. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was was a confirmed prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear in Shiloh because there he revealed himself to Samuel by his word. And Samuel's words came to all Israel. It's a far cry from where the chapter starts. In the beginning, there's a scarcity of God's word. In the end, there is a surplus of God's word as he is speaking through Samuel and people are being comforted in their affliction. And everything that Samuel said proved true. It held true because he was a faithful servant of the Lord. So the reason we want the ministry of the word among us is because we do regularly need to be afflicted in our comfort. And regularly we need to be comforted in our affliction. We need the same word that unsettles us to bring about a peace and a settlement as we look to Jesus for relief. We look to Jesus for hope. We look to Jesus for help. This is what the ministry of the word does amongst God's people. Now Samuel, in a sense, Samuel was sort of provided as a fulfillment of something that God had already spoken earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 18. As Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord, this confirmation kind of squared with some things that the Lord declared over his people in Deuteronomy 18. Check it out. The Lord made this promise years before this moment. I will raise up a prophet. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. Now, Samuel is the first formal prophet to be confirmed since that word was given. And in so doing, the Lord was moving history in the direction for that promise to be ultimately fulfilled. Because Samuel would now kind of be the fountainhead from which many other prophets would come and many other prophets would be confirmed as many other formal prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Micah and Amos and Obadiah, all those names that are hard to pronounce in the Old Testament, they would begin to speak God's word to God's people, afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. And all of it will ultimately lead to the moment when the ultimate prophet, Jesus the Christ, shows up the one that Deuteronomy chapter 18 ultimately points to that we're told about in Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him that is Jesus. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. God's word written is only doing what it's designed to do when God's word written is leaving, leading us to God's word living in the person and work of Jesus the Christ. The reason we are grateful for God's word, the reason we want a surplus of God's word in our lives is because God's written word points us in Jesus' direction. And we want God's word so that we can hear from Jesus who is speaking to us through its pages every time we open the word and we read it aloud. Every time we open the word and we explain what it means and we apply it to people's lives, every time we engage in the ministry of the word, we have opportunity to hear from Jesus and to be drawn to Jesus, which is the ultimate goal of our lives and our faith. For Jesus is the one that we know personally, and Jesus is the one that we are privileged to serve faithfully. So church, let's give ourselves to the light of God's word. Let's hear it. Let's obey it. Let's listen to it. Let's do what it tells us to do. Let's be about all that God's word tells us to be about. Because all that is found in God's word bears witness to the beauty of King Jesus. So as we wrap up and we voice a prayer together, At the end of this time, we want to pray what Samuel prayed. Every time we open the Bible, every time we read the Bible, every time we stand to to preach and to teach the Bible, we want to pray with Samuel. God, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name.